Open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 119, beginning at verse 65. We're making our way on this Wednesday night series through this great psalm, this longest chapter, longest psalm in the entire Bible, Psalm 119. And it's broken up into a set of 22 sets of eight verses apiece. And each one of the sections of eight verses corresponds with a letter from the Hebrew alphabet. And every line in the original Hebrew text uh, of that section begins with that particular Hebrew letter. And tonight, uh, on the previous evenings, we've been taking three sections. Tonight, we're only going to take two sections because I find them particularly rich and worthy for us to spend a little bit more time on each section. Our first section this evening is based on the Hebrew letter Tet, and we begin here, verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments." This section begins with a note of gratitude. The psalmist says in verse 65, you've dealt well with your servant. The the, the psalmist is thankful to God for the good way that God has dealt toward him. And it has come, notice there, according to your word. It's true that we don't think about it enough. But it is a wonderful fact of our lives that each and every one of us could say, and I don't mean to diminish anybody's trials, anybody's sufferings, or anybody's affliction, but each one of us could say, you have dealt well with your servant. Could you not say that to God? Could you not lift that up with a heart of gratitude? Think of all the ways that God has dealt well with us. He loves us. He chose us. He called us. He drew us to himself. He rescued us. He declared us righteous. He forgave us. He put his spirit within us. He adopted us into his family. He makes us kings and priests and co-workers with him. And we, he, he even rewards us for our work for him. Friends, it's true. He has dealt well with you. He's dealt well with us. And he's done it. Notice the phrase there at the end part of verse 65. He's done it according to your word. Now understand this, that the psalmist not only knew the promises of God and pled them in prayer, he also received the promises of God, and by faith he experienced them. Friends, this should be the experience of every believer in Jesus Christ, of every child of God. They should know that God has dealt well with them, and they know that it has been according to his word. Now, I know very well that this evening I may be speaking to some hurting hearts, to some burdened heart, maybe to more than one broken heart here this evening. And you didn't walk in here and sit down thinking really about how God has dealt well with you. Your life just doesn't, uh, you know, ooze with those circumstances right now. Well, I want to invite you right now to make a choice. A decision of your heart right now where you sit to say, no, God has dealt well with me. I'm not saying that every circumstance of my life is good or easy or comfortable, but I cannot deny that God has dealt well with me according to his word. Then he goes on now in verse 66 where he says, teach me good judgment and knowledge. This is the prayer for wisdom 
from a blessed life. You see, he received this well-dealing from God. And then the psalmist knew that he had received it so that he could live in good judgment and knowledge. That the blessings that God gave him were not for self-indulgence, but for an obedient life to the glory of God. It's a very interesting phrase that he uses there in verse 66 when he says, teach me good judgment. Actually, the idea of that phrase for good judgment in the ancient Hebrew is teach me good taste. Now, not so much taste as a physical sense where somebody would have a discerning palate for, you know, food or cheese or wine or whatever it bid, but judgment actually in the sense of knowing spiritual discernment, of being able to taste what is good from the Lord and to receive it. I think it's far too easy for us to forget our great need to learn good judgment and knowledge from the Lord. Isn't it the easiest thing in the world for us just to assume that we can figure things out on our own? Isn't it so true that that our pattern of life, this is true for me, that we only get down our knees and cry out to God, God, give me good judgment and knowledge only when everything has exploded in my face. Most of the time I feel like I can operate just fine, Lord. Thank you very much. But when God brings such circumstances into life, we get down on our knees and we realize, you know what, I should be praying this all the time, should I not? Should I be praying constantly, God, give me your good judgment and knowledge. We're far too ready to trust our own heart and our own conscience. Now, conscience is a wonderful gift from God. And most lives, especially most people who live abroad in this world, who, whose hearts aren't surrendered to Jesus Christ, most lives would be better if they lived according to their conscience, would they not? How much evil, how much sin goes on in the world because people don't follow the conscience that they were born with. Nevertheless, we know that a conscience is not perfect. And many people have damaged or warped or seared their consciences over with a hot iron. And so even though we trust that conscience is oftentimes a good guide to behavior, it's not infallible by any means. No better than conscience is the instruction that comes to us from God's word. It's even better than your conscience. Most people believe in the world today that the answers for their life are somehow within them. You've got to go your own way, follow your own heart. You know, just do that in your own mind and your own opinions. And friends, it's not true. No, the real answers to such things are found within the word of God for us. There's no school. There's no teaching, no a uh, thing that can do this except for the school that Jesus Christ brings us into and the teaching of the Spirit of God that can give us this good judgment and knowledge. And then I like how he ends verse 66. He says, for I believe your commandments. He wanted God to teach him because he really did believe the commandments and the words of God. If we really believe his words, then we want him to teach us how to take those words and live with them wisely and obediently. So after that wonderful beginning in verses 65 and 66, now in verse 67, he says something that is very true, but is very difficult for us to hear, for me at least. Verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Can I read you verse 67 again? 
Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. The psalmist speaks here of lessons learned the hard way. Couldn't we have a great testimony here tonight? We'll just bring everybody up and you get five (laughs) minutes to talk about lessons learned the hard way in my life, right? What a meeting that would be, wouldn't it? But this is how he's explaining it. There was a time in the psalmist's life when he was far more likely to go astray from God's word and the wise life that is revealed in the Bible. Yet now, under a season of affliction, he has a life that's more devoted to the word of God. You you could say that our trials can act as a guardrail or a hedge in our life to keep us in the right place, right? Right? Well, what keeps the sheep within the pasture as they should be? Well, there's some kind of fence. There's some kind of hedge. And oftentimes it's our trials that serve as that sort of hedge or, or wall that keeps us within the pasture where we should be. And so the Christian needs to understand this. That even though perhaps we, by God's blessing or God's appointment or God's work in our life, we are in a place of peace and prosperity. Enjoy it, yes, but understand that many times the lessons we really need to learn in the Christian life are learned in a season of affliction and adversity. It's just not difficult for us to grab onto. You know, oftentimes we think about the difficulty of a life that has a lot of adversity, a lot of trials, a lot of tribulation. We think, oh, that poor saint. Listen, there are many Christians who can't handle success. They can't handle a life of ease and blessing. If a person has a a prosperous, carefree, no-trouble life where everything is just a bed of roses, I don't automatically assume in that person's life that that's come from God. Because listen, it would be better to have affliction and have your heart trained to God's way than it would be to live a life of wonderful prosperity and ease and blessing, yet have it be a life that ends up out of God's favor and out of eternity with God. A time of wealth and a time of blessing is a time of special need. It's very difficult to restrain the flesh when there are many ways to indulge it. I like what one man wrote, a commentator named Bridges. He said, but should the Christian by the appointment of God be thrown into the seductive atmosphere, he will feel the prayer that is so often put into his lips, most peculiarly expressive of his need. And then he quotes an old litany when he says, in all our time of wealth, good Lord, deliver us. Now that's a strange prayer, isn't it? Oh no, Lord, deliver me in my time of need and my time of lack and my time of poverty. But friend, you and I and all of us, we need to be delivered in our time of wealth as well. And so God will allow affliction. Therefore, the psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, but now I keep your word. This principle has worked its way in the life of virtually everyone who has pursued God And many times when people have been humbled under affliction, 
They've humbled themselves before God. And then they've understood that I would never have cried out to God unless I had been brought low. Now, I like what Adam Clark says about this. He says, affliction sanctified is a great blessing. Unsanctified, it is an additional curse. Do you understand the difference there? You see, my friends, one of the greatest most wasted things in the world is affliction. And you could say that there's an affliction that can become a double affliction. A season of affliction or trial in your life when you do not turn to God is a waste. Instead of taking this thing that could turn your heart towards his word more than ever and give you a greater sense of your need and your dependency and your poverty of spirit upon him, you've utterly wasted it because in your season of affliction, you became proud and unbelieving and bitter and sour and all the rest of it. You know, if we will allow our times of affliction, they can do us great good. But friends, it's not merely having a season of affliction. Let's face it. Some people grow bitter under a season of affliction. They don't become better in the Lord. It's not the affliction in itself that does it. It's our hearts surrendered and submitted to the Lord God as it happens. Now, I want you to couple the thought where he says very plainly there in verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And then couple that with the thought in verse 68, where he says, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Now, this is an important and precious line to follow the recognition of affliction and the good it does in the life of the believer. It shows that the psalmist did not become bitter or resentful towards God for the affliction that brought him to even greater obedience. How many of us could say, yeah, I drew closer to God in that time of affliction, and boy, am I mad at him for it. Is that the idea of the psalmist? No, after understanding the affliction he went through and God, how God used it, he said, no, Lord, you are good and you do good. And despite the affliction that he had, which we should regard as genuine, he proclaimed, you are good and you do good. Matter of fact, he wanted even more instruction from God. Isn't that when God's really teaching you in a season of affliction? Isn't our uh, response, okay, God, don't teach me anything for about 10 years, okay? (laughs) Thank you, Lord, for these lessons learned. But can we just have 10 years out of school or so? But no, the psalmist, what a beautiful heart before God. He says, Lord, I know you, you, you took me to school under this great season, but God, please keep teaching me. You are good and you do good. This shows how confident he was in the goodness of God. And it's a most wonderful way that he praises God in the most basic sense. This is praise for who God is He says, you are good, and for what God does, you do good. And those are always two wonderful reasons for praise. And you know, you can always praise God for that, right? You can always praise God for who he is and for what he does. There's always a reason to praise God. He has blessed you. And you know what, even if you can't think of any reason why to praise God, you feel no sense of the blessing of God in your life. And might I say, that's a very dark season if you sense no blessing of God in your life. But let's say you're in it. Well, then you can praise him because he's blessed me and he blesses his people, right? (laughs) There's always a reason why we can praise God because he is good and he does good. 
And then he goes on now, verse 69. The proud have forged a lie against me, but but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. Now, in reading about the godly and humble character of the psalmist, doesn't it shock us to read that the proud were lying against him? Who, Who wouldn't like this man? He loves God. He's a gentle man. He's taught in the school of affliction, which means there's a humility to his life, right? Would the man reflect it in Psalm 119? Would he hurt somebody? Would he be hateful towards somebody? No, he would be a kind, loving, and generous man. Nevertheless, the proud forged lies against him. It's almost shocking to hear that he has enemies who would carefully craft lies against who he was and what he did with his life. Yet he explains how it was possible because the people who did it against him were the proud. And no doubt they were convicted in their conscience and they were spiteful of this humble and obedient and teachable life that the psalmist had before God. Listen, the Lord will do us good, right? That's what he said in the previous verse, in verse 68. But if the Lord will do us good, then Satan and those who are unwittingly used by Satan will do us evil. And sometimes they will forge lies against us. And what's the best answer to those lies? Isn't it painful when people lie about you? Have you had such experiences? It's really dreadful, isn't it? It's especially dreadful when Christians do it among themselves. It's really awful. I can say confident that when Christians lie about other Christians, they are doing the devil's work. They are. Because it's the devil who's the accuser of the brethren. It's the devil who's the slanderer, right? He's the one who tells falsehoods about other people. And so we should never be guilty of doing the devil's work. And it's painful when it happens. But do you know what the best defense is against these lies that are told about us? The best defense is to live in such a way that anybody could tell that it is a lie that's said about you. People lie about you and they say that you're proud when you're not? Then show by the humility of your life that it is a lie. They they lie about you and they say that you're unholy? Then show by the holiness of your life that it is a lie. Prove the lie wrong by your life. And then you'll have an answer in every situation. The response of the psalmist is really wonderful there in verse 69. When those lies were being said about him, how did he answer back? He said, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. The lies of the proud didn't distract him or overly discourage the psalmist. Instead, he dedicated himself to greater obedience and honor of God. He pledged to obey him with his whole heart. Friends, I have to say that sometimes it's been written in my life, and I don't want to sound overly dramatic about this, but I think you understand my sense. I would say something like this. The proud have forged a lie against me, and I'm going to get them for what they did. (laughs) But listen to what the psalmist writes. He says, the proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with all my heart. Isn't that beautiful? That's his answer to the lies that are said about him. And then he says, this is wonderful, in verse 70, he says, their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. Isn't that a beautiful passage? Their heart is as fat as grease. The fat heart is not good for physical health or spiritual health. 
And in spiritually speaking, it meant that their hearts were dull and insensitive. They were drowning in luxury and excess. In contrast, the psalmist found his delight in the word of God. And there's always this contrast between the believer and the person who lives for the ease and the comforts of this world. That's their idol. Their idol is to leave a, live an easy, comfortable life filled with pleasures. Could it not be said of many or most of those people that their heart is as fat as grease? But the psalmist's heart was delighted with the law of the Lord. I like what one commentator named William Fenner said about this. He says, quote, As if he should say, My heart is a lean heart, a hungry heart. My soul loveth and rejoiceth in thy word. I have nothing else to fill it but thy word and the comforts I have from it. But their hearts are fat hearts, fat with the world, fat with lust. They hate the word as a full stomach loatheth meat and cannot digest it. So wicked men hate the word. It will not go down with them. It will not gratify their lusts. And so he looks at this. And he makes this very valid analysis. And, you know, I think about it. I was thinking about this and meditating on it today. And, you know, we live in a culture, we live in a society that's very interested in physical fitness, right? People are concerned about it. And people work hard. They work hard to be physically fit and to not have a biological heart that is fat as grease. And that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. The Bible does not say that bodily exercise is wicked. It says it profits. It profits little, but it profits. Well, it's not a bad thing. Oh, but listen, let me tell you what is a terrible situation. It's to have a heart that is fit biologically, but spiritually it's fat as grease. And friends, I would just have you, what's the condition of your heart? Well, I'm not talking about a treadmill test, right? But isn't that what they do? Isn't that what they do when they want to test your biological heart? What do they do? They stress it. They afflict it, do they not? And isn't that the test for a heart that's fat as grease? Put it under some strain. Put it on a spiritual treadmill test, right? And when it moans and groans and, it, oh, I can't take it anymore, and it just can't do it, and it collapses on that spiritual treadmill, the doctor could come out and give you the spiritual prescription, right? Your heart, fat as grease. You need the Word of God. You need to put your heart and your mind, you need to meet with God in his word. Because when we talk about meeting with the word, we're not talking about just in a textbook sense, but we're talking about the beautiful power of the spirit where God meets his people in his word. He continues on here now, verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted. That I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. The psalmist here repeats the idea from earlier in this section. Right? He said it in verse 67. And now he says it again in verse 71. It's good for me that I was afflicted. That I may learn your statutes. And this repetition is an effective way to communicate emphasis. Please remember in Hebrew poetry, that's one of the most powerful ways that they would indicate emphasis is by repetition. And the idea is very plain, is it not? That affliction, when it's brought under the wisdom and the guidance of God's word, it does genuine good in our life. 
I like what Spurgeon said about this. He said, I, for my part, owe more, I think, to the anvil and the hammer, to the fire and to the file than anything else. I bless the Lord for the correction of his providence by which, if he has blessed me on the one hand with sweets, he has blessed me on the other hand with bitters. And they're not blessings in the bitter things that God allows us to experience. Luther said much the same thing. Martin Luther said that he never knew the meaning of God's word until I came into affliction. That's what he said. Yet we must guard under the misunderstanding that seasons of affliction automatically make someone better or godlier. Sadly, there are many who become worse from their season of affliction because they fail to turn to God's word for wisdom and life guidance in those times. And this also shows how valuable the hearing and the learning of God's word was to the psalmist. It was entirely worth it for him to endure affliction if only he could learn the statutes of God in the process. That made the time of painful affliction worthwhile. Friends, there's not much we learn really deeply in our life without some sort of affliction, without some sort of stretching and testing and trying. And so it's time for God to bring such lessons into our life and for us to trust. Again, we trust at all times that, Lord, you are good and you do good. Many believers, and I know I'm speaking to some here tonight, you're afraid to yield your heart this way to God because this is what you say. If I yield my heart in this way to God, he's going to stomp all over me. You say, oh, good. Now you want to learn through trials? Ooh, I'll send you some good ones. And listen, what have you just denied right there? You've denied that he is good and that he does good. Keeping in mind that, we can trust him as a loving father and come to the conclusion that the psalmist claimed to in verse 72. This is wonderful. That the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. It's a logical extension of the thought in the previous verse. If the psalmist understood that even trouble could be good if it taught him the word of God, if trouble could be more valuable to him than comfort, then it's also possible to say that the word of God is more valuable than riches. Now, this great estimation of the word of God came from a life that had known affliction. It was love and appreciation from the field of battle, not from the palaces of ease and comfort. And he says, no, Lord, your word is worth something to me. It's worth more than thousands of coins of gold and silver. I like what Adam Clark said about this. He said, who can say this? Who prefers the law of his God, the Christ that brought him, and the heaven to which he hopes to go when he can no longer live upon earth to thousands of gold of silver? Yea, how many are there who, like Judas, sell their Savior even for 30 pieces of silver? Hear this, you lovers of the world and of money. Let me conclude this section with one more quote. It's from John Mason. He said of this, The word of God must be nearer to us than our friends, 
dearer than our lives, sweeter to us than our liberty, and pleasanter to us than all earthly comforts. This is a beautiful place to be in for the soul before God. Father, that is our prayer. And I pray now for those saints of yours, Lord, who are in a season of affliction. Lord, I pray that none would think that my words or the psalmist's words here this evening are flippant towards those who are afflicted. But Lord, that these words come from a life, from a soul who has known such affliction and nevertheless trusts you and loves you with the whole heart. Lord, fill our hearts now with praise to you, the one who is good and who does good. This is the God that we can trust, even in a season of affliction. Receive it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.